Hey everyone, Megan here. Thanks for stopping by the inaugural post of my new podcast, The Unspeakable. Before we get into the first episode, I just want to say a few words about this podcast. Since I think we can all agree that the world does not need another one of these, I guess I'll admit that I did this for slightly selfish reasons. And those are that I love to talk and I love to listen to other people talk. And I miss the way we used to talk. I miss just sort of roaming around a conversation, trying ideas on for size. I miss being able to stumble upon a new subject. And instead of asking myself, am I allowed to talk about this? Thinking, I can't wait to talk about this. And that's what I'm hoping this podcast will be. A place where thoughtful people can explore ideas with honesty, humor, and generosity of spirit. That's really it. It's pretty simple. Now, this is all new to me. The project will probably evolve over time. Depending on how things go, I may offer bonus content for paid subscribers. But for now, everything is free and available to everyone. And I'll add that I'm doing this as an independent enterprise. It's not affiliated with any existing platform or media space. You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and also at theunspeakablepodcast.com. Feel free to email me there with any comments or suggestions. Within reason, of course. Be nice. And with that, I thank you for listening, and I welcome you to The Unspeakable. Can she hear you? Yeah. Is she getting, the, is she getting the problem? Uh, not yet. Okay. Do you want to be able to monitor the audio back in your headphones? Uh, would that make it easier to... I can hear her fine. No, would you like to be able to hear your own audio back in your headphones? Dad always prefers that, so I'm not sure if you would prefer that. I don't. If she's not noticing it. Yeah, don't worry, worry about it. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't hear that you said that, so uh, Megan is going to use this as the bonus track. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Hello, and welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest on this week's episode is evolutionary biologist and writer, Dr. Heather Hying, whose entire household you've just heard making valiant and ultimately successful efforts to fix an audio problem that we encountered at the beginning of our interview. Heather is currently a visiting professor at Princeton University, and she is a former professor at Evergreen State College, where she and her husband, Brett Weinstein, that was him in the background with their two sons, taught until 2017. She spoke with me from her home in Portland, Oregon, where her cat Fairfax occasionally chimed in with some counter arguments. Truly a family affair. Heather Hying, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. I know you've got a ton going on, so I'm really grateful that you took some time to talk. You are a biologist, a professor, a writer, among other things. You began to come to public attention back in 2017 because of your involvement, and directly, with an incident at Evergreen State College, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I want to start by playing a clip of something you said back in February of 2018. This was during a panel discussion at Portland State University that had to do with ideas around diversity. Notably on the panel was James Damore, the Google engineer who wrote what came to be known as the Google Memo, addressing the question of why there aren't more women software engineers at that company. And we can talk more about this panel in a bit, but I want to start by listening to a remark you made about biological differences between men and women and whether or not these are something to be overcome. You could be irritated by it. You could be irritated by the fact that women have to be the ones to gestate and lactate. You could be irritated by a lot of truths. 
But taking offense is a, is a response that is rejection of reality. So men and women are different on height. They're different on muscle mass. They're different on where fat is deposited on our bodies, right? Our brains are also different. So there are some binaries. Security! What you're hearing at the end there is the moderator, Peter Bogosian, calling for security because some protesters have just cut the audio, presumably in response to your statement. Can you elaborate, Heather, on what that statement was and tell us what you think the protesters were reacting to? So the protesters were reacting actually to just having timed a walkout and their timing made them look as ridiculous as they could have looked. And so they were engaging in this thing that I've called read-only activism, where it actually doesn't matter anymore what the opponent says. They're already primed to object and to be offended. And uh, they are therefore going to object and be offended no matter what comes their way. Put that aside, though, because obviously that sort of strategy on their part is based on some number of months, years, decades, depending on the age of the protesters, of hearing things that are actually quite banal and quite reasonable and universally accepted as reflective of reality, and having the reaction of, that hurts my feelings, and therefore it can't be so. So there's the level of, you know, are men and women on average different heights with different distributions of muscle mass? I'd actually never seen that trigger people before. What I have seen trigger people before and since is once you start getting into claims that on average we have uh, different brains, we have different strengths and weaknesses of personality, we have different interests, and with less support behind it, but some as well, potentially different strengths as well, you know, different abilities that can be more or less accurately predicted based on whether or not you're male or female. And one of the reasons that comment was so striking to me is that I think a lot about what is the root cause of inequality between men and women, as it's been historically, as it is now. And it seems like a lot of it to me is because we are saddled with reproductive obligations, and that will take you out of the workforce. And I think that was something you were addressing yeah. in your remarks, but like, it seems like that even acknowledging that uh, ends up being sort of tantamount to endorsing it or condoning it or mm. celebrating it. Like, so yeah. Why do people seem to be so unable to like walk and chew gum at the same time? <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. And this is someplace where when, when I taught this stuff, you know, when I was a professor and mostly teaching undergraduates for a living for 15 years. I began every quarter of teaching, every program, when I was meeting new students by saying, look, we're going to be talking about difficult things. And for God's sake, I don't think that talking about different heights and the fact that women gestate and lactate and men don't is actually difficult. Things that are difficult include evolutionary underpinnings for real horrors like rape and genocide, right? But we, we would talk about those things too. And I would say, we're trying to understand what's true. We are in no way justifying what's true. So understanding the evolutionary underpinnings of reality then allows us to actually perhaps make policy and change behavior such that those things can become more and more rare in humanity. And, you know, you're on a panel, I was on a panel 
with James and Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose. And uh, we were able, I think, to have a really interesting and far-ranging conversation. But what we didn't have was months of interaction, like I always had with my students, in which I could establish trust and say, you know what, there are going to be some things that come out of my mouth that sound like what you don't want to hear. And sometimes what you don't want to hear is on you. And sometimes I'll be wrong. But often what it is, is I'm describing something that we have come to understand is a real pattern in the universe. And once we understand what the pattern is, we are in a better position to change it if it seems worthy of being changed. And, you know, the idea that men don't Uh, gestate and don't lactate. And therefore, women have been the ones who are doing that work has caused uh, differences in the ability of women to go out and, you know, have public lives, at least since agriculture. And, you know, perhaps before that, but we can absolutely trace the anthropological record shows that with the advent of agriculture in cultures, you see a you know, you see the birth interval decreasing, women are more tied to hearth and home, and it's much more of a split, a division of labor between domestic work and work outside of the home at that point. And that didn't require any bigotry on anyone's part. It didn't require any intent to disempower anyone. Not to say that those things didn't happen. I'm, you know, obviously there's been bigotry and abuse of power rife throughout all of human history, but the fact that agriculture meant that there were more resources available to people and women were therefore better fed and were able to have kids faster and were more therefore likely at any moment in their adult fertile lives to be either pregnant or lactating, a lot falls away from that. And that's just true. Now, have you, or did you notice, I guess you left Evergreen in 2017, like how long were you able to have these kinds of conversations with students and have them just accept this, be open to this kind of logic? Like, when did you start noticing pushback when you talked about these ideas? You know, my classrooms almost never had these sorts of issues. And I think that is because you know, one, one of the remarkable things about Evergreen, one of the reasons it's so sad that that college has fallen to this social justice ideology, was that we had full-time programs, meaning that instead of taking three or four or five classes at a time, students took a single full-time program. And it might be with one faculty or two or three even, but it was a fully integrated curriculum for sometimes a quarter or up to a full year. So for instance, uh, in my penultimate year teaching there, Brett and I taught a full-year program. My husband, Brett Weinstein, and I taught this full-year program that included 11 weeks of study abroad in the middle of the year and several weeks of domestic field trips in the fall. And we taught statistics and evolutionary biology and animal behavior and philosophy of science and archaeology and just, you know, across across the board. And yeah, we had some students who were interested in playing around with some of this ideology. And it wasn't perfect. And, you know, we did get some pushback in some places. But by starting on the first day of class with Here's what we're trying to do. Here are the tools that we're going to be using. We expect you not to believe us just because we say it. We need to earn both your trust and your respect. And we're going to push you around and you should push us around intellectually. And what we're trying to do is create a community wherein being pushed around intellectually doesn't trigger anyone psychologically or emotionally. And, you know, if you do end up feeling unnerved by the content or uh, uncertain of what it means about other aspects of your life, come talk to us, please. But don't impute 
weird underlying beliefs that we haven't said to either us or to your peers. And, you know, this approach really worked. We treated the students with respect and like full human beings, not just like brains in jars that were ready to receive information from us. And almost entirely, they responded in kind. So yes, by, oh, I I don't know, probably by 2014, 15, I was seeing glimmers of this kind of thinking show up on occasion in my classrooms. But, you know, for instance, I I had trans students who came to a program knowing that we were going to be talking about the evolution of sex, the evolution of sex differences, the evolution of gender, uh, mating systems, territoriality, uh, maternal care, evolution of parental care, all of these things. And they were eager for it, uh, in part because Mm. these were students who were feeling a real disjunction between the bodies they were born to and how they felt inside. And they wanted the tools with which to understand themselves better. That's astonishing to hear, given the the climate today around trans issues. You know, I don't want to relitigate the the Google memo because we led with that clip. You know, the context of that discussion and the context of the Google memo was this idea that there were far fewer female engineers, specifically coders. I think uh, at Google, there I think it was like a one to four ratio, and there's a one to four ratio of women to men coming out of MIT, for instance, uh, majoring in those areas. uh, It's almost as if there is such a will to create equity when equity doesn't sort of exist in nature in a way. And do talk about brain differences between men and women. And I think, you know, we're at a time where I don't think any rational argument can be made that there are not differences between biologically male and biologically female bodies. But when it comes to the brain thing, like, how do you square that? What do you say to somebody who says, well, you know, there's no evidence whatsoever? Well, to someone who says there's no evidence whatsoever, I unfortunately think that I'm probably dealing with an ideologue for whom it's going to be difficult to have a conversation about what evidence there are. But the journal Nature has published (laughs) papers saying as much. Yeah, the, the journal Nature has, and you know, the blog on Scientific American has, and uh, yeah, the, the the big gated institutions have uh, have fallen prey to this ideology. Fact is, there's plenty of evidence that there are differences in the brains on average between men and women. And one thing that is said is, well, but isn't aren't the differences within female brains greater than the differences between Female and male brains, for instance, the differences you know within female brains and within male brains are themselves greater than the differences between, and that's almost certainly true. It's also true that you can look at height distributions for which we can see it's simply a measurable quantitative trait, right? And you can say, okay, and I'm, I think my numbers are out of date, but at some point, average height for women in the U.S. was five five, I think, and average height for men was five ten, but you know, the, the range of heights for women is probably, I'm guessing here, but like, you know, four, six to six feet. So there's a range of heights for women that spans at least a foot and a half. And the average difference between the two sexes is only five inches or so. Does that mean that there are no differences between men and women? No, of course it doesn't. Right. The fact that the range is greater within a particular category doesn't mean that the categories themselves have no differences between them. So, I mean, one of the things that I think helped in my ability to make this point with students, for instance, was not just the 
know, explicit discussion of expecting them to push back whenever they heard something that didn't square with what they thought they knew. But also I taught statistics. And so just going through sort of descriptive statistics, how is it that we describe populations? What is a mean? You know, what does average mean? And what does spread mean? And you know, pointing out just that, that actually there's so much, yes, there's more variance uh, within the height of women and within the height of men, and there is a difference between them. But that doesn't mean that the categories aren't real. So when we get into a question like, why are there so few women coders? Why are there so few women engineers at Google? Why are there so many more women in the biological sciences? Have women been discriminated against? Are they less interested? Uh, is it simply that they're less interested or... Is there some kind of boys club phenomenon happening that's keeping them out? I want to talk to you about that more broadly, but also in the context of your own evolution, so to speak, as a, as a biologist. Mm. I mean, we talk about women in STEM. You are a woman in STEM. And, you know, I think, you know, fans of yours know a bit about your work and a lot about your ideas, but I don't think they know as much about you as a person. You know, you came to into the public eye because of the incident involving your husband, Brett Weinstein, who, like you, was professor at Evergreen State, and he got drummed out by protesters who were nonsensically tarring him as a racist. You were on sabbatical at the time, so it was sort of his story that a lot of people came to know. But I'm curious about your trajectory as a scientist, particularly as an evolutionary biologist. Can, can you talk about that? Sure. Well, one thing is that in diving into the literature, which I know <laughs> when I say the literature, that means I'm not talking about myself, but I will get to your question. You know, in diving into the literature on sex differences between men and women and you know, whether or not there are differences in ability versus just interest and all of this, one of the things I find is that there is good evidence that uh, men and women are actually pretty equivalent in terms of their ability on average in sort of quantitative and scientific endeavors, but that over in language space, in what we might typically call the humanities, that women actually outpace men on average. And so if that's true, and I'm not certain it is, but if those two things are true, you might expect, and indeed we see, that women who are really good in science and math, but are even better in you know, wordsmithing and philosophy and such, uh, may move out of STEM into literature and philosophy and, and things like that. And indeed, this is what we see, that a lot of women who start out in STEM maybe feel a little bit like, uh, you know, it's not exactly what I want to do. And maybe it's a little bit of a boys club. And this other thing is even more appealing to me. So that's about interests and ability just within women. And the reason that comes up now in response to your question about sort of my history is that I went the other direction. So I always, I wanted to be a writer. I started college actually specifically wanting to do science fiction, and I was a literature major for a couple of years. And it just, this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, solidly Gen X. And I was really baffled. I had, I had had an extraordinary high school education. I was very lucky, very privileged to have a really extraordinary high school education. And going to these literature classes and these writing classes in college where there was no attempt to actually engage the underlying truth or universality of the literature that we were reading was staggering to me. And I started just craving the reading lists that we would get on the first day of class and then really wanting to avoid all of the discussion 
of the books and the and the critique of the writing because it seemed really banal and missing the point. And so <laughs> I, I, I don't know, actually, Megan, what if I'm allowed to do this, but you know what your background is, if you were a literature major or what in college, and if you had that experience in any lit or writing classes that you took. Well, it's so I'm laughing because I think I'm having that experience retroactively. Mm. I'm one of these people that's only like really good at one thing. So I, I couldn't have majored in science if I'd wanted to. I only wanted to be a writer. So I took literature classes and I took writing classes. The way things are now in the media sphere and just the way that facts in and of themselves have become fungible. I find myself thinking that if I could do everything over again, I would go into a career that was very fact-based, that was reality-based, where you were doing something concrete. You know, I fantasize about being an FBI agent or something, you know, <laughs> or just, just something where you were doing actual things in a direct way. And then I would write also. I don't think anything right. would have ever kept me from writing. So I kind of, uh, you know, I really wish that I had entertained the notion of doing you know, two things simultaneously. But, you know, it, this we're about exactly the same age. So, you know, we grew up in the 1970s and the 80s. And one of the things that I think about a lot is there was a way of being a girl in those decades that I think is almost not available now. And so I'm curious, mm -hmm. like growing up, and this does tie into your life as a scientist, but growing up, what was your relationship, not only to femininity, but to, to femaleness and your concept of what was possible for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, everything was possible. Everything seemed possible. And you were growing up in California, right? I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. And my parents, neither of them had been raised, uh, even really middle-class surroundings. But by the time I came along, they, we were moving towards upper middle-class. So I lived a, lived a very charmed life in LA, in West LA. Were your parents, were they scientists at all? What were their fields? My dad was a computer scientist, actually. So, you know, a guy born in 1938 who was a computer scientist wow. was um, something of a rarity, although his peers, his colleagues, his friends who, you know, were sort of the milieu of that I had growing up. I imagine that a lot of people his age were computer scientists, but, you know, thinking about it now, it seems like, no, actually, that was one of the earliest generations to even have that as an option. You always think your family is <laughs> just like the other families, right? Yeah, exactly. And my mom was not, not a scientist. She raised us. She was a stay-at-home mom until quite, maybe I was seven or eight. And then she and her best friend, who was also sort of a second mom to me, went into business together. And they started a calligraphy school and store in the in a house on the property of my mom's business partner and friend in North Hollywood. And so for a couple of years, they ran that and it was wildly successful enough so that they were going to have to move and they decided they'd had enough. So they actually shuttered a very successful uh, new business. A calligraphy is... <laughs> store. Talk about something that you would not see anymore. It Was this in the 80s? I feel, exactly. like, I feel like calligraphy kind of yeah. had its payday in the 1980s. Yeah, I think. It was probably late seventies, early eighties is okay. when is when she had it, and you know they had met doing calligraphy, and then later she became a, a typesetter. Uh, so once you know, when my father, being a computer scientist, brought a computer into the house earlier than many people had computers, she started doing typesetting and uh, design and sort of layout. And so you know she was using the tech that my father helped implement to create beauty, to create beauty in the world. And so I got you know very much this humanistic, you know, artistic understanding of the world and you know an aesthetic from my mother and a also humanistic but uh very much about math and science 
approached the world from my father. And in both of their cases, their friend groups were, you know, not entirely overlapping, but they both had uh, people of both sexes. My mother, for whatever reason, the particular communities that she was involved in had a tremendous number of gay men. And my father was working with a number of uh, Eastern European uh, refugees. This is before the Berlin Wall fell. So, you know, he had all of these women software engineers, actually, that he was mentoring in the 80s. And my mother was working with all of these gay men who were also, you know, playing around with some gender norms. And in none of that did I ever think, oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm a boy, or maybe there's things I can't do. It was quite the opposite, you know, because I was exposed to so much diversity of what people might be doing, and how they might be doing it. And the demographics ranged from, you know, escaped from behind the Iron Curtain and desperately poor to, uh, you know, just moved across the country from Manhattan, where they'd been raised, you know, born with a silver spoon in their mouth, everything seemed possible. You know, the world was full of opportunity. And I mean, it's one of the just tragedies of this moment and this last 10 or 15 years that we seem to be regressing. What do you think happened? Okay, so, you know, we're in high school in the 80s, we go to college in the late 80s, early 90s, like, you felt invincible up until what point, or maybe you still do. When do you think that like this feeling of being able to do anything you want as a girl stopped being the norm for most girls? Obviously, it's not for everybody. We'll put that, you know, that's, yeah. that caveat. But generally speaking, the, just the rhetoric around what it meant to be a girl and what was possible for you really sort of radically shifted at a certain point. It really did. Let me ask you first, where did you grow up? I grew up mainly uh, in New Jersey, in suburban okay. New Jersey. Yeah. I've had this kind of conversation with a couple of other people, both of whom are our age-ish and who also grew up on one of the coasts. And one of the things that I've heard is, okay, but maybe your sense of infinite possibility and opportunity was restricted to some degree to the coast. And I don't know if that's true. You know, I, I did my graduate work in the middle of the country in Michigan, in Ann Arbor, which, you know, it's a little outpost of liberalism, of you know, coastal elite thinking in the middle of the country. But I feel like this sense of infinite possibility, regardless of whether or not you're, you're a girl or a boy, was across the country in the 70s and 80s. But I'm not totally sure of that. I think it was. That's interesting. I never really thought of it as a geographical thing. I mean, there's class elements yes. to it, of course. And I'm sure racial and ethnic elements as well. But I don't know. I I guess also it's like an aesthetic. So I'm mm -hmm. probably going to end up saying this on every podcast because <laughs> I'm a little bit obsessed with this, but there was a way of presenting in the 70s, you know, being a tomboy was cool if you were a girl. There was no, like, you didn't want to be the girly girl. Yeah. And I think that that continued on through the 90s. There was the riot girl aesthetic, that kind of thing. And then the raunch culture started to emerge in the early aughts. And now we have this Instagram kind of as a default, the hyper femininity, hyper sexualization. And I think that that has given some girls, many girls, perhaps the impression that that's the only lane for them. When I just feel mm -hmm. like we had a, like a lot of lanes on our freeway uh, yeah. when we were growing up and when we were young women. I think that's right. You know, I personally, my mother who had no advantages growing up, was so thrilled to have a daughter to whom she could give a lot. Uh, she was interested in creating something of a princess. 
and it didn't work. It didn't, it didn't take with me at all. <laughs> really? You're still, I, I was going to say, you're not quite there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, I, like I, I played classical piano for 12 years. Like that was supposed to be my thing. And, you know, I took French rather than Spanish and, you know, we read Austin together when I was a child. I mean, it was, it was that sort of, you know, fantasy that wasn't mine. And it was, you know, entirely from love on her part, but she was trying to fit me into a life that was never possible for her. And, you know, could have been possible for me, but for the fact that I had no interest in it. So, you know, I'd get dressed up in these crazy fancy dresses when I was a little tiny girl and go out and get them filthy and rip them because <laughs> I was climbing trees in them. And that was, you know, to her enduring irritation that happened, but she also didn't try to force me into her fantasy. It was clear that that's what she had imagined having a girl would be. And I just wasn't that. And that was fine. And, you know, I do, I, I do very much think that someone would have called me trans if I was doing that now. And it's terrifying to me. And that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. And I hear it. I, yes, that is a whole other conversation. Maybe I'll, I'll drag you back for that. I think okay. maybe we need to have one of those like 15 different people on the conversation <laughs> for this yes. one because I hear it again and again. Like I think people of our generation, like we would have been that it would have somehow been called into question our gender identity. And I was thinking about that. I don't think I would ever have thought that I wanted to be a boy. Right. But I definitely like I don't know. If, if I was growing up today, would somebody have tried to put that on me? Possibly. But again, that's another discussion. Yeah. But Heather, did anybody ever tell you that you couldn't be a scientist because you were a woman? No, ne never. You know, I, I, had, I had one incident that I can point to when I was in eighth grade uh, where I was treated badly. And I'll, I'll tell the anecdote if you want. Um, but I, you know, as I feel like saying to the protesters now, the ideologues now, I don't know for sure that I was treated badly because I was a girl. It could have just been because the teacher I had was an idiot or just having a bad day or something. So, you know, the story, I was very good in math. I was exceptionally good in math. And we had a new math teacher uh, for a test, or he, maybe he'd been with us for a couple of weeks, and he gave us a test. And not only was I good, I was fast. And, you know, being fast in math is really, who cares? It really doesn't matter at all. It has very little to say about the rest of your skills. But I finished the test first, and it I did it perfectly, I gather, because I went up to the front of the room and gave it to this guy. And he quickly scanned it and said loudly enough for everyone else in the class to hear, how dare you cheat in my classroom? And wow. you know, this, was, this was not the kid that I was at all. And I was, you know, I was horrified and embarrassed and blushing and ashamed, even though like, like, I knew I hadn't cheated. There's no way I had cheated. And in fact, I'd always been lauded for my skills in this, in this room. Wow. And so you know, I went I took that home and told my parents and to, to their credit, they went to the school and I was at a terrific school uh, and the teacher didn't persist at that school. You know, this was, this mm -hmm. was in an era when making ridiculous false claims publicly about students didn't sit well, but you know, was it, did he take a look at me and say, you're a girl, you couldn't have done this? It's possible. Maybe, maybe that contributed to his sense of, you know, how could you have done this? But I honestly don't know. And other than that, I can't think of, of anything. I know that, you know, my mother always wondered why I was interested because it wasn't where she was interested. And she, you know, she wanted me to be a writer, not a scientist. <laughs> well, <I would> <laughs> right? That's the other way around. I, I would encourage my children <laughs> the reverse, but yes. Exactly. But no, I never had the sense at all that I wasn't supposed to be doing it. And is that due to your temperament? Okay, but see, this is where, because I 
feel similarly about my own career path. However, I've been in jobs that were dominated by women. There is an old boys club within media and publishing and among writers, yes. But I think that I'm aware of my own sort of myopia around some of this because I have not been in settings where there were like a lot of men. Yeah. So I'm curious to talk to somebody like you. You really, truly, because people will push back at you and say, well, you must be in denial. You must not right. be remembering because right. that it is impossible that you have not suffered from discrimination on some level. Or what about your female peers? Is that like, do you think that part of it is just the way you're wired? You're just not looking for it. You're not going to pick up on it or dwell on it if it happens? Well, I think I am likely to question whatever I feel irritated or offended. Was that because I'm a woman or was it because of something else? So I, you know, I do try to run that script in my head whenever, you know, whenever I get looked at funny on the street or anything, right? And of course, you know, when you're talking about interactions on the street, very often it is sexual. You know, you, you are having interactions because you're female and the dude whistling or whatever is a man. But there are a whole lot of other interactions where it's just not clear. And, you know, it, the department that I was in, in graduate school, briefly, we had a department chair who had a hard time looking women in the face. He like, he preferred to look people, women in the, in the chest. And it was mm -hmm. something that everyone talked about. It's like, yeah, that guy, that's not cool, is it? And it wasn't just the women graduate students who talked about it. We talked about it with the male graduate students and even among faculty. So that would have been sometime in the 90s. And, you know, he was, he was an old dude then, and I'm not excusing him. You know, we talked about but it. But you didn't do anything about it. That's what's interesting. So it remained just a sort of internal discussion, like everyone kind of rolling their eyes and accepting it. It remained an internal discussion, but he only lasted for about a year. Okay. So, you know, he wasn't there for a decade or more. He was an interim department chair that people had the sense of, uh, yeah, he's, he's not going to be here for long. And, you know, it's, yes, I mean, to, to your point, when, under what circumstances should you raise your voice, even though you know that other people will wish you hadn't, right? Right. But I did field biology. You know, I, I left literature for a couple of reasons. You know, I, I love story. I believe in the power of story so firmly. It's just deep in my bones. But I found that I wanted stories that I could also assess, that I could, I was also allowed to do the scientific process on some of the stories I was interested in telling. And I also was discovering that I just loved adventure and travel and being a field biologist and going to, you know, I did my dissertation research in Madagascar, in a very remote part of Madagascar. Madagascar is already remote. Yeah. And I always had a field assistant with me one year, for my longest field season, it was just her and me on this little island off the coast of Madagascar. And there were a couple of Malagasy guys who were supposed to be the quote unquote conservation agents there on the island. But I headed halfway around the world having to pack for five months everything I might need and lived out of, t out of a tent and showered in a waterfall and, you know, figured out what my hypotheses were and studied my frogs. And at the point that I came back and shared what I had learned, I had never heard from anyone that, oh, I shouldn't be doing it or I couldn't have done it. It's like, no, patently, here it is. Like, I've got the photographs, I've got the data, I did this. What are they going to say to me? And there were a lot of field biologists in our department, and I don't know exactly what the sex ratio was, but as you said earlier, biology is actually skewing female now. And this is one of the things actually that James Damore brought up in the Google memo, which is that there is considerable evidence that given freedom of choice, 
women are more likely to choose professions in which they're engaging with, and usually it's said as people, but because I'm an animal behaviorist, I think of it as like other organisms, other organisms that you can have empathy with. And men are more likely on average to pursue things in which they are engaging with things or numbers or right. you know, machines. And so, like I said, I don't know what the sex ratio in our department was when I was a grad student, but it was pretty close to one-to-one, I think. You know, had it always been? No, of course not. You know, it was right. in the in the 60s. I'm sure it was skewed much more heavily to men. And in fact, a good friend of mine, uh, Jennifer Ost, and I were the first and only female students of our advisor who retired uh, just recently because, uh, you know, he had a reputation in, in part because he had a reputation of being very gruff and very serious and, you know, he, he just very hard on people. And the kind of work he did hadn't been I guess, very appealing to female graduate students before. And we loved him. He was terrific. And he never, he treated us exactly like he treated all of his other graduate students. That was the thing. He didn't give us any special treatment. And if he had, that would have been a problem. Do you think that it's a matter of perception? Is it a matter of communication? Because if there, okay, take your, any given female graduate student today, going to Madagascar, studying what you studied, doing the field work that you did. Do you imagine her having a different sort of perception of her experience than you did? Like maybe what would cause her to come back and talk about the experience differently or to blog about it or to post things on social media that had the sort of flavor of being in danger or being somehow not in as advantageous a position as you felt you were in? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being at a, you know, in an elite department at the University of Michigan is one thing. And then, you know, frankly, being in the field, especially when the only person I had with me was another woman, um, and, a, and a very young woman at that, was different. You know, that that actually did have the potential for real danger. And there were, you know, there were these spice boats that would come through and dock on the island, and the sailors would come onto the island and uh, illegally hunt lemurs to eat them. Mm. And so on occasion, I would actually be hiking to my field site and would run across and the sailors tended to strip down to nothing when they came on land. I'm not sure why. So I would I'd literally come across like a group of eight to 12 <laughs> naked men you know, near my field site. And, you know, obviously, if they had wanted to do me harm in any way, they could have. I was completely outnumbered and would have been overpowered. Although they were naked and you were clothed, but they, <laughs> this is true. they, they this were is still, true. they still had the upper hand. <laughs> yes, quite so. You know, they're a couple of moments like that, I thought, okay, I don't love this. And I don't like the dynamic here. And I wish this weren't happening. It's not supposed to be happening. You know, the conservation agents are here to supposedly keep this illegal poaching off this island. But the fact is nothing bad did ever happen. And I was careful and spoke to my field assistant and to the conservation agents about it whenever we saw incidents that looked like they were potentially dangerous. And, you know, what more can you do? I could have decided the possibility that one of these boats has uh, one rogue guy on it and that he turns out to be a rapist or a murderer means that I am potentially at more risk than I would be if I stayed home in Ann Arbor. So I'm not going to do this work anymore. I certainly could have made that decision and that wouldn't have been, you know, that wouldn't have been a decision that I would have made in the same way had I been male. Mm -hmm. But that is true. As for what happened in the department, I don't know how other than you know, that one brief moment of a department didn't take his eyes off cleavage, what the incidents would have been. You know, it really felt like we were moving beyond focusing on 
demographics of people and focusing instead on their ideas, what they were capable of, how they responded in conversation, whether or not they were compassionate and empathic, and if they were doing good science. Right. We were post-gender. We were post all that stuff. It was like the post-period. Yeah. And that's not to say that anyone, I mean, obviously it was clear, you know, when I walked into a room, I was like, yep, that's a woman. You know, and and right. I'm, I'm not saying that you know people didn't notice. It's like claiming that uh, you right. know you we're not gender all, blind. Yeah, no. I don't yes. see color. Yes, you do. Like, of course <laughs> right. you do. Yeah, then you, then you're, you need to go to an eye doctor. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, but okay, if you had had the opportunity at any given time when you were studying, either in the field, in the department, whatever, to go on social media and recount your experience and have a whole bunch of people chime in, sharing their experiences kind of interpreting your experience through their own lens, would that have changed the equation? How much of what we're seeing now is the result of people just sort of saying everything that happens to them and hearing about everything that happens to everyone else, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a really good thing. But I think it does alter our perception of our own experience. It 100% does. There's no time for privacy and for reflection before you've already sent it out into the world and started to hear what you are supposed to think. And I will say, I'm actually, I'm pretty extreme on this point. Like I I actually had never been on social media at all until Evergreen blew up, at which point I sort of said almost under my breath to Brett, oh my God, I think I have to get on Twitter, don't I? And it's my one move in that direction. And, And I do it because I have to, because now it's part of the world. But sharing every thought, you know, I started to see this changing in my students in what would have been 2007, 2008, right when Facebook was still vying for MySpace, I think, for that market. I actually wrote a final exam question for my students. I was teaching a program with a linguist called the Evolution of Communication. And I was talking about mostly non-human animals, um, how they communicate and what they're communicating about. She was teaching linguistics. And I was not on Facebook or MySpace at that point, but there was this burgeoning conversation in sort of philosophy of science and linguistics circles around, are we, is this a return to a culture of orality? Like, you know, we had this oral culture around campfires and with, you know, wandering storytellers who moved from mm-hmm. band to band, and then we became literate and our modes of communication shifted somewhat. And right. we, we were allowed to spend more time thinking and reflecting before we shared our ideas with the world. And then those ideas were permanent. And, you know, does this move into social media move us into a slightly more orality typed culture in which there's no time for reflection? The difference being it's also permanent. Orality type culture. That's what you said. Orality. Exactly. Oral oral. Right. Exactly. So oral versus, versus literate. There's a, boy, what is it? I think it's Walter Ong who had published an, a really interesting analysis of oral versus literate cultures back in maybe the 50s or 60s. I think he called it orality and literacy. And you know, this question I asked of my students was basically assess, assess this new thing that we're calling social media in light of the tools that we've been developing. What kind of history does it have? What's its developmental trajectory? What are the adaptive advantages? How will it stop us from progressing in the future? All, you know, all of these things. And when I was doing fieldwork in Madagascar, it wouldn't have been possible anyway. But there, you know, there was once I was at my field site, there wasn't even the possibility of a of a satellite phone, really. Right. I went and I was lucky if I sent a letter and it got received in four weeks yeah. in the US. And then I'd get a response and you know, by then I'd be halfway through my field season because two and a half months had passed or something. 
So I disappear for five months and just have, you know, my field assistant uh, and those seasons when Brett was with me, you know, my then boyfriend, husband, whatever with me and this forest and the Indian Ocean and the lemurs and the chameleons and the frogs and just, you know, hiking alone with my thoughts, writing, doing science and nothing encroaching. And it made me the scientist that I became. You know, without that, I wouldn't have had the confidence. And you know, maybe this is part of it, actually, that spending time, especially when I was when it was just me and Jessica, my female field assistant that I had in the, my 1997 season, it was just me and her. And it was my longest field season. It was the one where I was really developing my hypotheses and setting up my experiments and figuring out how to figure out the questions that I had. I didn't have anyone to fall back on. And Obviously, conversation is the lifeblood of uh, intellectual progress in many, many ways. But once you've talked about your ideas with someone else, if you lack confidence in any way, you can imagine, well, maybe that came from them. Maybe that emerged from this other person and I wouldn't have done it on my own. Yes. And they change the minute somebody else hears them in a way, right? Exactly. And so, you know, I had five months of being able to play around with ideas with a woman who was still a teenager. She's brilliant, um, but she, you know, she was quite young. And, you know, I had to do, you know, the physical stuff and, you know, I, you know, all the way to the intellectual stuff on my own. And it meant by the time I came back from that field season, I didn't have any doubts that I could do it because I demonstrated it. And I do think that some of what the crisis is right now is that people haven't been able to test their own abilities. And so they just have this complete crisis of confidence mm-hmm. and they have no way of knowing whether or not they're capable. Yeah. It's like we, we've lost ownership over our own thoughts. So you published a book yes. about uh, your time in the rainforest, Antipode, about I studying did. a species of poisonous frogs that are only found there. It was published in 2002. Did mm-hmm. you ever think that 15 years later, you'd be known to the public as a free speech advocate? <laughs> no. From oh frogs God. to free speech. No, not not. Could at you all. have predicted and that the culture would have come to this? Not at all. And in fact, I, I've been going back through for a number of reasons. Some of the stuff that I wrote in college, uh, because I went, I actually, like I said, I had been a literature major, and I decided I was really interested in evolutionary biology. Uh, but by then, I had too many credits, and I transferred schools, and I didn't have enough time left to me in college to do a biology major. And so I picked what I thought was the next closest thing, which would also allow me to take some upper division science, which was anthropology. And so I actually have an undergraduate degree in in anthro, and I have all of these essays from then in which I'm I'm basically pushing back against this ideology, this current ideology in its nascent form, because we had some postmodernists in the department. And yeah, I just, in fact, I just found this play I wrote as a final for one of our classes in which the the characters include modern and postmodern and feminism and science and boy, what else? I, you know, I bias, I think. And I've got modern and, you know, modernity and postmodernity just fighting it out against one another. And already then I see in my thinking and, you know, in the reading list for that class, when I go back to it, like this was there then. And a lot mm-hmm. of us were rolling our eyes and saying, what, what is going on? Why are we being told in a class that is supposedly social science, which is supposed to have its foundations in reality and assessing our claims? Why are we now being told that everything that is unequal between the sexes is a result of the patriarchy. Like a totally untestable claim that also seems ridiculous on its face. 
like every difference between men and women is about the patriarchy? Where does that come from? And how is the pain even being defined? And how is it being defined? And you know, that particular ridiculousness came from a physical anthropologist whose life's work was literally measuring skulls of the great apes. Like this is someone who understood measurement and analysis and could then also say this this thing. So the cognitive dissonance was incredible. And actually my my thesis in college, my senior thesis was an exploration of how in non-human primates, I wasn't focusing on on humans at that point, but I was in females, in non-human primates, females and friendship, how it is that friendship develops and holds and what some of the mechanistic drivers also are of friendship between female non-human primates like monkeys and apes. And one of the things I wrote in this back in, boy, what that would have been like 92, I guess, was that I was seeing in the literature some very strange glimmerings that it was actually kind of not okay maybe to even be talking in terms of female proclivities and male proclivities because that was playing into to old stereotypes and to, again, the patriarchy. And I wrote then, I can't believe that this is in the scientific literature, but I'm sure it'll pass, you know, something like that. Right. It felt like a little spasm at that time. It was like an in-joke among the left. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? It felt like a spasm. But I think, you know, you and I and the kinds of people that we tend to talk to, to the extent that we saw it then, I think rightly judged that we were the majority to say, what is this? Oh, it's not. That's not right. We were wrong in thinking it's not important and it won't grow in power. But we're still the majority. That's the thing. Yes. We're still yes. the majority, but we're just not the loudest. So we're not the loudest. And the students then who saw it and liked it, who said, I'm going to grab onto that. They're the faculty now. So they're the ones who are indoctrinating students now. And then, of course, those students who have been indoctrinated rather than educated go off and, you know, become journalists, become software engineers, you know, become all of these things. Right. No, they're setting the conversational tone. If we are going to admit that it's not necessarily the patriarchy as some sort of amorphous social construct that is keeping us down, but rather these responsibilities we have to lactate. I mean, not me personally, but I I attribute what little success I've had to the fact that I don't have children because I would be such a terrible multitasker. But if we're going to recognize that there are certain biological realities that are inconvenient Mm -hmm. for women and that are going to hold us back, how then do we assess how much of this can be socially engineered out of society? Like, how do we reconcile this? Because you're admitting that this is the reality, but then how do you keep someone from just accusing you of saying like, oh, well, so you're just throwing up your hands and we're all just conscribed to mother? I'm reminded of actually a conversation I had after that Demore event in February of 2018. A young couple, a heterosexual couple with a woman who was visibly pregnant, spent some time talking to me and they seemed, you know, they were curious and they were interested and they were grateful for the conversation. And then maybe 10 minutes in or so, the woman said to me, why can't we just go back to the way it was with traditional gender? And I honestly didn't see it coming. Like, wow, I thought that we were exploring how we can not pretend that things aren't true that are, while also still understanding that progress away from restrictive and stereotypical gender norms is largely very, very possible. I know because it's the world I grew up in. 
And so, but this, you know, this young woman, they were probably both in their mid twenties is basically asking for return to that. And you know, I, I said, gosh, no, I, I don't want that. I have no interest in that. I, you know, that's never the world I wanted to be part of. I am a mother. I had my kids late. I had already, you know, lived quite a lot. I never would have been able to do what I did in Madagascar if I'd already been a mother. But also freedom to choose not to do that or freedom to choose to do that and have it be the defining feature for you. All of those ought to be legitimate choices. I want to talk about how some of this plays out in terms of who is speaking publicly about these hot button issues. There's this whole sort of heterodox space that you have wandered into, I have wandered into. You've married into an interesting family, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Your husband is Brett Weinstein. Your brother-in-law is Eric Weinstein, the mathematical physicist, who's also the managing director for Peter Thiel's company, Thiel Capital. I believe yep. it was Eric, maybe it was Brett and Eric, who coined the term intellectual dark web, which yep, refers to Eric. this sort of, it was Eric, that's right. It refers to this sort of loose constellation of thinkers who want to sort of challenge prevailing narratives and talk about things that are not easy to talk about in the more mainstream media. So why aren't there more women in this space? You know, we can sit here all day and talk about how we have not been uh, held down by the patriarchy as severely as advertised. But, you know, when I type your name into Google, the box that comes up on the right identifies you first as Brett Weinstein's wife. Yep. No, that's irritating. I wish that wasn't the case. And to be honest, no shade on Brett, but like you're the heavyweight here. (laughs) You um, have a remarkable career. You have magnificent mind. Why are you the quieter one here? And frankly, why are so many of the people in these conversational circles men? Like, where are the women? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. You know, I I hardly want to defend Google, uh, but with with regard to just that little tiny piece of it, because it's an easier part of the question to answer. You blame the uh, algorithm. You know, as, That's what you're going to do. Yes. <laughs> well, no, I'm actually not even going to blame the algorithm. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to blame the ridiculous situation, which is what catapulted us both into the public eye, uh, which is you know nothing that we ever wanted, and you know the fact that I was on sabbatical whenever Green blew up, and so literally had no presence on campus as it was all happening meant that I was inherently behind the scenes. But it's also true. So that's just that's just chance, right? But there's also a non-chance part of that, which is that Brett is much more likely when he sees something like this happening to go after it. He he cannot leave it alone. And I think that in that way anyway, the two of us are fairly gender typical, that, that, that in general, men are more likely to speak up and out and against and women. And, you know, we, we actually, again, see some evidence of this in the psychological literature, that to the degree that there are average personality differences between the sexes, women are more likely to be affiliative and not, you know, wanting to soothe and smooth over communication rather than make trouble. So I, I do think that's part of it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this because one of my theories is that the in-group, out-group dynamic uh, that comes into play really intensely and sometimes painfully around these discussions, it may just be that women are more sensitive to it in general, in the aggregate, not everybody. Mm -hmm. But I have noticed that there are women who 
have very strong opinions and want to talk about them, but it's not worth being cast out. And it may just be that men don't care. (laughs) Like, are they just a little bit antisocial? And that's what's giving them that extra push to stick their necks out. And that's, I mean, that's consistent with the finding that, you know, men are more likely to pursue things in which they're engaging with things rather than people. Right. And it's also consistent, you know, so that the ash conformity experiments from, or the ash conformity experiment from the 1950s, in which at that point it was all males, it was all male undergraduates were basically taken into a room with, uh, what, three or so Confederates who were actually working on the part of the experiment and shown a line and asked if that line was the same length or shorter length than another line. And when all three of the Confederates gave the wrong answer first, a surprising percentage of the time, the male subject who could patently see that this was not true, conformed to falsehood, right? Conformed to Mm. an untrue statement when the other people in the room had all made a claim that they could see with their own eyes wasn't true. So that's a, that's a, classic psychological experiment that I think is one of the relatively few that has not fallen to sort of p-hacking and, you know, all of, uh, rather the replicability crisis yeah. rather than p-hacking. But more interesting, I think, I went and looked at the many replications of that experiment since specifically looking for whether or not, as I hoped, it had been done also with women as the subjects, because, you know, male undergraduates is all very well and good and female undergraduates doesn't in- increase that all that much, but it would specifically allow a person to look at whether uh, the hypothesis, which I had, of whether or not women were more likely to conform. And sure enough, across several sets of the replications of that original ASH experiment, when women are included, women conform to the wrong answer at higher rates than men do. Mm. And that's awful. Like I I hate that result. I wish it weren't true. Mm -hmm. And I want to hope that I would not be one of those that would be conforming. And I think at this point, with all of this explicit discussion that we're doing, you know, you and me right here, and that we both have been doing for years now, that, you know, we would not be conforming in that situation. On the other hand, these situations come at us in subtle ways. You know, they come in conversation where someone slips in something that, you know, you don't agree with, but it's not the main part of the conversation. And do you halt the conversation to point out that that thing wasn't true. Is it true that men would be more likely to say, hold up, you know, no way. Right. They don't mind I'm not dis- into disrupting that. the flow of the conversation, hijacking it on some, dying on some very right. small hill. Yeah. Right. And, you know, their small hill might actually be exactly the hill that warrants dying on. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I do think on average, men are more likely to be more disruptive than necessary. And women are more likely to be less disruptive than necessary. And, you know, it's not that we both, we, as sort of demographics, as male and female, we both don't have errors on average, and they're going to be in opposite directions. And, you know, I'm not saying, oh, we should, you know, women should be more like men. No, we both probably have some correcting to do. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, you and your husband, Brett, have been posting weekly YouTube videos of the two of you having conversations about all sorts of things through the lens of evolutionary biology. So as of today, we're recording this on July 15th. You've done 30 of these, I believe. Yes, we have. Yep. That's astonishing. You started on March 24th, I think. They've been enormously popular, getting tens of thousands of views within hours of going up, it looks like. Did you have any idea that you'd get this kind of response? No. You know, I, I think not really. Originally, it was, as you said, March 24th. And we were all just in lockdown and we had had to 
move the studio that we had set up because Brett was already doing a podcast, but he only had a few uh, episodes up. We moved into our home and we were just having these conversations over the dinner table. So it was, you know, Brett and me and our two teenage sons talking about the biological and social implications of coronavirus. And we thought, you know, frankly, at some level, we were kind of grateful for the idea that, you know, we have some knowledge here. Our background gives us some expertise. And this is evolutionary without being about free speech, right? Like this is the stuff that we were actually trained for. And, you know, still not exactly, but hey, let's share some of what we're seeing and what we're thinking with the world. And, you know, of course, no one saw coronavirus coming. You know, probably a few people did, but most of the world didn't see coronavirus coming. And I don't think anyone saw George Floyd coming. And so we pivoted, you know, in the early part of June to talking about what was now the major story, which of course completely followed from coronavirus. You know, there's no way that the protests would have grown so large so quickly and maybe they wouldn't have become riots and maybe they wouldn't have become so captured by the really bad parts of the ideology as they had, had people not had lockdown fatigue the way they did, where people were just, you know, wishing that they could get out of the house and engage with people. So here it is. They, they had an excuse. Yeah. But yeah, we've been, uh, we've been gratified. It's a strange, it's a strange way to make a living, I gotta say. So what are you working on now? Do you guys have a project in the works other than these weekly conversations? We do. We were, and you know, this is one of the beautiful, unexpected things that emerged from the Evergreen Meltdown, where, you know, we had had tenured jobs and now we didn't, and we had to move and uproot our entire lives and our children's lives. Uh, but we ended up with a book contract that has almost nothing to do with the uh, social justice ideology and postmodernism, but has a tremendous amount to do with a book that we've been talking about writing for, oh, it's 11 years at this point. So the title is A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Mm-hmm. And it's an exploration of what we are as humans, you know, going all the way back to the origin of of life, but focusing mostly on the origin of of humans and exploring everything, really. You know, there's a chapter on food, there's one on medicine, there's one on sleep, there's one on sex and gender, and another one on relationship and parenting, childhood, school, higher ed, being an adult. And then, you know, how is it that we can function as a society? So at the, you know, at the largest level of the sorts of issues we've been talking about, you know, how do we engage one another with respect and care and not make rules that are so gameable that a few really loud people take over the conversation and take down institutions like the New York Times? Yeah, well, I was going to say, again, we are (laughs) recording this on July 15th. By the time this airs, which won't be airs, listen to me, by the time this posts, <laughs> which won't be too long from now, that'll probably feel like an eternity ago. But yep. yesterday was a big day. Barry Weiss at the New York Times announced her resignation with a scathing, lengthy uh, letter. Oh, it's brilliant. It's such a good letter. Andrew Sullivan, later in the afternoon, announced he was leaving New York Magazine. We've been having these huge meltdowns at lots of uh, big institutions. The New York Times, just one among them. You guys are not media people. You're you're not a, a media personality or somebody who's you know grown yeah. up in this. But what do you feel is missing from the conversation within these these heterodox spaces? Like you know, but getting back to this, there there is this emerging group of people who are pushing back against this ideology with rationality, with compassion, with thoughtfulness. But I still think there's a lot to be desired. What do you 
think we need more of in terms of the way we talk about this or even what we offer in terms of content? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer that I want to have. Um, The answer that comes to mind uh, reveals my usual bias, which is that- I don't have the answer uh, either, which is why I'm (laughs) you. So you've called my bluff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My usual bias is the first answer that I think of here, which is that understanding ourselves as evolved creatures who behave abominably sometimes due to understandable evolutionary forces and behave beautifully and honorably sometimes due to equally understandable evolutionary forces. Both of these things are true. And we can understand our evolutionary history and then try to be our best selves and not fall prey to the instincts that will divide us. Conflating our immediate emotional state with what is good for us long-term and imagining that what our brains are telling us right now is inherently what is true or right. These are all misunderstandings based on, frankly, a a kind of a quasi-religious understanding of what humans are. As if even people who say that they believe in evolution often imagine that it stopped at the point that we became human. And now the rest is this sort of magical cultural layer that hasn't anything to do with evolution. Or they grant that, okay, our bodies are the result of evolution, but somehow it stops at the neck and our brains aren't evolutionary, aren't the result of evolution. Well, of course they are. So maybe I'm saying this because it is exactly the book that I'm writing right now, and it feels quite true to me right now, as for decades. When I went searching for meaning as a teenager, and I was studying literature, but I was also studying Buddhism and you know various other spiritual traditions, looking for meaning the way that teenagers do, or at least the way that teenagers used to, At the point that I came upon evolutionary biology as a way to frame the world such that you could understand without justifying anything, so many pieces fell into place. And I became less scared and I think less angry, less likely to ascribe ill intentions to other people when I ran into them on the street, and just more open to possibility. And I'm sure it wouldn't work that way for everyone, but I think it has the capacity to for many. Well, Heather Hying, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been a fascinating conversation and I've loved it. And I hope we can pick it up again sometime soon. So thank you so much. I would love that, Megan. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Down. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Heather Hying and to the entire Weinstein Hying family for their technical support on this one. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. For more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. You can listen to the podcast there too. I hope you will tune in next week and I'll announce the guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time.
Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in patient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.